Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Garrison. If this is your first time here, if you're new to Veritas, I'm one of the pastors at Veritas here, and we are very glad that you are here this morning. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, we are going to be looking at Ruth 1, verses 1 through 22 this morning. Well, uh, during the, the season of Advent, we're going to be making our way through the book of Ruth, and uh, it's a very appropriate book for this particular season. As we've already discussed this morning, Advent is a word that means coming, and it's a season wherein we, as a people, um, sort of uh, experience just the, the weight of waiting for the, the second coming of Jesus. You know, sometimes people almost use Advent and Christmas as kind of synonymous terms, but they're not synonymous terms. Uh, Christmas is about the, the first coming of the Lord Jesus. It's about the celebration of His arrival, His birth. Advent, on the other hand, is a season wherein we remember Israel in her waiting for His first coming in arrival. It's a season wherein we remember that from Genesis 3.15, the people of God had waited for hundreds, even thousands of years for the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for His rescue. They were waiting for Him to come and make things right. They were waiting for His redemption. But it's not only a season wherein we remember the waiting and anticipation of Israel, it's a season wherein we identify with it. We recognize that even we here and now are in a state, in a season of waiting, of anticipation, of, of longing, because we, like Israel, we're waiting for the arrival of our King. We've seen His, his first advent, yes, His first coming, yes, but we are now awaiting His second advent. We're longing for Him to return to us, to give us the resurrection of the body, to glorify the earth with the presence of of God, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to make all things new. We are waiting still for His second coming. Well, in a similar way, the people of Israel during Ruth's lifetime were longing for a king to come and give them rest. They were longing for a monarch to come and straighten Israel out. They were longing for a ruler to come and make things right. In fact, one commentator uh, that I've been looking at, his, his book is, is right on. He's, he's right on in giving his commentary the subtitle, the subtitle, The King is Coming. You see, because the, the book of Ruth takes place within the period of the judges. We'll learn a little bit more about that in a moment, but it takes place within the period of the judges. But it's a period in which the Israelites were increasingly recognizing and longing for a king. And the book of Ruth is a story about an ordinary family who faces extraordinary suffering, but it's through this ordinary family and through their extraordinary suffering that God sovereignly orchestrates the arrival of the young monarch King David. It sort of offers a, a bigger picture in that regard. Of course, on this side of the coming of Jesus, we now have not just a bigger picture, but the bigger picture. We now know that Ruth is not only the great-great-grandmother of King David, we know that Ruth 
is also the great far-off grandmother of King Jesus. And that's one thing I'd like us to keep in mind as we make our way throughout the book of Ruth over the next several weeks, because it's going to put this book in its proper perspective. It's going to put the ordinariness of this family's life and the extraordinariness of their suffering in proper perspective, as we recognize and remember that the King has come to be God with us in the midst of our ordinariness and suffering, and that ultimately He is going to come again to redeem and end all of our suffering. Indeed, the King is coming. So we are going to dig into Ruth chapter 1 this morning. Let's look at God's Word and let's listen with reverence and joy, for this is the Word of our God. Ruth 1, 1 through 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? 
She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they, be, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, inevitably, you are going to hear over the next several weeks again and again that it is the most wonderful time of the year. Many people feel that way, of, of course. This is a season of Christmas parties, Friendsmas celebrations, secret Santa at the office. Many are looking forward to time with with family during the holidays, the, the meals, the gift-giving, the family traditions, the, the tree lightings. And yet for many others, this is not the most wonderful time of the year. This is actually a season accompanied by many painful reminders that we live in a fallen world and that our lives are indeed broken. Perhaps this season with all of its fun traditions is simply a reminder of how profoundly lonely you feel. Perhaps this season is filled with anxieties over tense family dynamics and difficulties. Perhaps this season, as you gather with family and friends, serve as a painful reminder of that family member or that friend who is absent. Perhaps it's an estranged child, an absent parent, a deceased loved one. Perhaps for you, for many of us, this is a season of suffering rather than wonder or merriment. Well, this morning, I'm pleased to introduce to you Naomi. And now you would think that with Ruth's name being the title of the book, that she would be the main focus and in She is in the chapters to come, but for the first chapter, Naomi seems to be the the author's main focus. If this were an episode of a television show, the camera would be primarily on Naomi here, and so we'll be looking primarily at her this morning. But as we do so, my, my hope is that you will see yourself in Naomi to some degree. And more importantly, my hope is that you see Naomi's God who even in the midst of Naomi's ruin and dark response is with her and is ultimately working all things out for her good and for our good. The big idea we see in Ruth 1 is that even in the midst of ruin, we can trust that God is bringing ultimate redemption. Even in the midst of ruin, we can trust that God is bringing ultimate redemption. We're going to unpack that in four stages by looking at ruin, response, Ruth, and redemption. Now first, let's look at Naomi's ruin. Ruth 1 begins by saying, In the days when the judges ruled, 
There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, right away, the author is letting us know something. He's letting us know that the times in which this story takes place were dark times. These were dark days. You know, Charles Dickens' famous book, The Tale of Two Cities, begins by saying it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. There's no saying this about the days of the judges. It was just the worst of times. They were the dark ages of the nation of Israel. It was just the worst of times. If you were to read through the book of Judges, the book that precedes Ruth, you would find tales of rape, murder, of post-mortem bodily mutilation, of, of civil war, of deceit, of idolatry, and all kinds of covenant unfaithfulness. In fact, if you just glance over the page, at the very last sentence, the very last book of the book of Judges, it sums it up very well. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a wicked world, a cruel culture. They were depraved people. And to make matters even worse, there was also a famine in the land likely due to the people's covenant unfaithfulness. Ironically, this this famine in the land, it hits the land of Judah in a town by the name of Bethlehem, a name which literally means house of bread. An irony that sort of emphasizes the severity of this famine force, even in Israel's bread house. The agricultural center of Israel, the place with the fertile fields, it's barren. And of course, we, we Westerners, we're fully capable of moving right past this word famine without a second thought. We live in the time of globalism, GMOs, and grocery stores. None of us have experienced fam- the horrors of famine. But in the ancient world, famines were times of death. Literally, people died from starvation. People killed one another. There was people stole what little they had from one another. They were times of displacement and civil war and starvation. They were horrendous times. And so it's no surprise that this Jewish man, verse 1 speaks of, in an act of desperation, sojourns with his family to look for food. However, what's not surprising, or what is rather, what is surprising is where he goes. He and his family, they go to Moab. Now, the Israelites generally hated their Moabite cousins. The Moabite people were born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Moreover, when the Israelites were sojourning through the desert on their way to the promised land, the Moabites did not come to their aid when they truly needed them. And, And to make matters worse, At some point in time recently, close to the time of Ruth, uh, some of the Moabite women and some of the Israelite men had gotten together in a fit of debauchery and idolatry. And so because of all this, the the Moabites were Israel's traditional enemies. This would be like an Ohioan moving to that state up north. It was horrendous to think of this. Natural enemies. Now also, ironically, this man is named Elimelech which means God is king. In a day wherein there was no king in Israel, this man and his name served as a reminder to God's people that there is indeed a king in Israel. His wife's name is Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And this family is a part of the tribe of Judah, a sort of 
uh, a, a tribe, and, and, and then this kind of smaller sub-tribe, a, a kind of tribe within a tribe called the Ephrathites. And while they're in Moab, th- things may look okay for a bit. They found food. The two sons have found wives, Orpah and Ruth. But eventually things go bad. And then they go bad, from bad to worse. Not only are they strangers in a strange land, displaced by famine, refugees traveling with empty stomachs, I find that Naomi's husband and her two children actually die while they're in Moab. And I know the words are stated so matter-of-factly here in the text. But we would do well to see in these words a, a, a grieving widow a grieving woman, a a woman in a strange land, now widowed, now childless. It it doesn't get any worse than that. The same hands with which Naomi held Elimelech and Malon and Kilion now had to bury them. There will be no grandchildren now. And not only that, but because of the societal structures of the day, Naomi's lost her pension. She's got no retirement. She's got no one to protect her and provide for her, doomed to end her days in poverty and loneliness. She's truly, she's lost everything. You see, it's it's no exaggeration for us to call this Naomi's ruin. She's facing utter ruin. She may have left Bethlehem with an empty stomach, but now she's got an empty home, empty arms, an empty heart. Perhaps you can identify with her. Maybe you you haven't experienced the same suffering, the same level of suffering as Naomi. But all of us, at some point in time, we face loss, devastation, suffering, ruin, Maybe you haven't yet, but believe me, you will. We all live on this side of glory in the, in the veil of tears, as some have called it. Everyone at some point in time faces in their lives suffering, loss, and ruin. We live in a world of sickness and disease and estrangement and isolation We live in a world of depression and miscarriages and hunger. We live in a world of childlessness and loneliness and abuse. We live in a world of death and so much more. We live in a world that in so many ways does not reflect the character and kingdom of our God. We were created for this this better world that we had in the beginning and that we're promised will one day come. But here now, in this present, in this moment, in these times, we experience experience darkness and ruin. And it's very important for us to remember this as Christians, particularly in our tribe, theological tribe, because we can very easily read the Bible in a way that treats human beings as merely being sinners. Sinners and not also as sufferers. But the gospel 
speaks a word to us as both sinners and sufferers. The scriptures are, are continuously adamant about this. The, the Bible speaks a word to us as both sinners and sufferers. We are simultaneously sinners and sufferers. We are sinners, yes. But we're not only sinners. We're also sufferers. We're not just perpetrators. We're victims. We're not just sinners, but we're wounded sinners. All of us experience the brokenness and difficulty of life in a fallen world. All of us are subjected to circumstances that no human being should ever have been subjected to. All of us are wounded at the hands of others. All of us experience painful providences. All of us are broken by death and destruction. And I wonder, what do you do with that? What's your response to your suffering and devastation in life. When you face ruin, when you come face to face with death and destruction in life in this fallen world, what do you do? What's your response? We have record of Naomi's response here as we read on in the chapter. Naomi actually decided to pick up and move back to Bethlehem. Apparently, the the famine had ended in Judah, God had visited his people. There was food again. And sensibly, Naomi thought that being far from home without her husband and son sounded more dangerous than being home. So she heads back to Bethlehem. Yet, as you would assume, having gone through all that she's gone through, she's not returning as the same woman. And it seems that she's not handling all of her losses and all of her suffering particularly well. Verses 19 and 21 record her response, a conversation she has with some of the women of Bethlehem when she returns. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You know, many believers, when they experience suffering and loss, they, they testify to the reality that they, they've experienced a, a kind of overwhelming sense of God's presence, a kind of nearness, a sweet comfort, an unexpected rush of, of divine strength. Many Christians even testify to seasons of spiritual renewal in the midst of profound suffering. However, Naomi experiences no such thing. Like Asaph in Psalm 77.3, it seems that For Naomi, thinking about God only makes things worse. Asaph says in Psalm 77, 3, When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. That's the sort of thing Naomi seems to be experiencing. Many Christians throughout history have have referred to it as the dark night of the soul. This this dark night of the soul is is this time in one's life wherein they they not only experience horrendous suffering, but they also seem to experience the seeming absence of God. 
time wherein one's soul doesn't even seem to be comforted in the presence of God, a time of trouble wherein it seems that God is, is far away. And you know, that's actually one of the notable traits of the book of Ruth as a whole, as many scholars have pointed out. God is, is seemingly absent from the book. There's no miracles, there's no prophets, no words from the Lord, no priests, no sacrifices, no tabernacle. God is, is conspicuously absent, or, or so it seems. And so inevitably for Naomi, some difficult questions start popping up as they often do when someone experiences deep and profound suffering. So often, people start questioning either God's sovereignty or God's goodness, or sometimes even whether He exists at all. And for Naomi, she obviously still believes in God's sovereignty and existence. She refers to God. She calls Him the Almighty. She recognizes that everything that she has experienced was either planned or permitted by Him. But you can see she's kind of questioning. She's asking, is God truly good? Is he truly for me? His hand has gone out against me. Some of what she says is shocking, right? She's saying things that if maybe we heard one of our fellow church members saying, we'd likely be a bit startled, maybe even a bit frightened by. And you know, this is one of the things I really love about the Bible, it doesn't gloss over the horrors of suffering. It doesn't shy away with, with dealing with the horrors of what we face as human beings, and it doesn't simply tell us to shut up and swallow our questions. In fact, like I often like to remind people of the reality of that almost half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. They're texts wherein the writers of the Psalms are bringing their griefs to God in prayer and in song. And and in case you didn't know, the Psalms are are literally the prayer book of the people of God. The Psalms are God's word, yes, but they are unique in the sense that they are God's words that He puts in our mouths to pray back to Him. And almost half of them are Psalms of Lament, songs of sorrow, prayers of grief, wherein God's people bring their tears and their suffering and their questions to Him. And so here's one very important piece of application. Part of your response ought to be this, always bring your grief to God. When you suffer, when you are broken, when you are grieving, when you are doubting, the proper place For your tears and cries, your questions and doubts is in dialogue with God. One of my favorite psalms illustrates this. Psalm 77, just mentioned it. Asaph, he he peppers God with questions throughout the psalm in a tone similar to Naomi. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all of time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? In other other words, where are you, God? Why are you not intervening here? I need you. Why are you so far from me? 
These are the kind of words that God invites us to pray as His people. As John Whitvelet once said, we're invited to bring our most intense theological questions right into the sanctuary. Another important piece of application is that we ought to be the kind of community wherein we can handle questions such as these. I imagine that if Naomi had said these things in group one night, some of us might squirm in our seats. It might make us a bit uncomfortable. We might even be tempted to write her off as kind of theologically unsophisticated. I think that's harsh. God's not afraid of questions such as these, and we needn't be either. And if we're going to be the kind of community wherein people can safely process their suffering, we need to learn this vital lesson. And notice how the women interact with Naomi here, how they speak with her here. Notice they don't try to serve as interpreters of Naomi's suffering. Notice, notice, you can see that kind of response in the book of Job, when Job interacts with his friends, they try to serve as interpreters of his suffering and try to give reasons for his suffering. Perhaps Naomi's friends don't do this because they're, they're women, they're a little more relationally intelligent. But you see, they don't try to become interpreters of, of Naomi's suffering here. They don't explain to her that if she would have just stayed in Bethlehem, they don't say... They don't tell her that her and Elimelech were sinning when they went to Moab, and this is God's judgment upon them. They don't claim that if, well, if you only hadn't allowed your boys to marry those Moabite wives. None of that. Likewise, in our dialogue with fellow church members, when they suffer such as this, when they face ruin, we ought not try to interpret their suffering. We ought not try to determine the, the reason or purpose for their suffering. Instead, we ought to listen. We ought to pray. We ought to offer sound biblical counsel and care and refrain from speaking where God's word does not speak. That said, though, I am going to have to disagree with Naomi about one thing. You know, she says that if she left Bethlehem full and came back empty, but that's simply not true. You see, because Naomi came back from Moab with a precious gift, she came back from Moab with Ruth. Look with me next at Ruth. You know, not so ironically, Ruth's name is remarkably similar to the Hebrew word for friend. And now we see a scene that, that beautifully depicts the kind of friend that Ruth is. It may be one of the most beautiful scenes in the book of Ruth, maybe even in the entirety of the Old Testament. While Naomi is on her way back to Bethlehem, her daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth are with her. And along the way, she stops and, and she tells them to just go ahead, go back to your parents' house. She gives them a very compelling case for why they ought to do so. She shows them it is actually in their best interest to go back to their parents' houses and not go with her. And she's right, it is. Orpah sees her counsel as common sense and she heads home. Ruth, on the other hand, 
She refuses to leave Naomi's side. She lays aside her own interests and she stays. The, the, the text says actually that Ruth clung to her. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And as, as Ruth grips Naomi in this beautiful embrace, she makes a vow to Naomi that, that sounds much like a vow that the Lord made to his people back in Exodus 19. She says in verses 16 and 17, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You see, Naomi didn't come back empty. She came back with Ruth. She wasn't alone. She had Ruth. She had a daughter-in-law and a loyal friend who later in Ruth 4, we hear, is actually more to her than seven sons. It's a gracious gift from the generous one himself. Naomi has Ruth. And part of what I want you to see this morning, member of Veritas Community Church, is that when tragedy strikes, when ruin comes, you're not alone either. You have a people who have made a vow to you, to be with you, to be present to you, to stay. I remember hearing Michael Card talk about this in an interview once time in his church wherein a, a, a little girl was killed by a drunk driver. And he was talking about this funeral, and he said something so profound. He said it was so tragic that no one even tried to fix it. The best answer we had was to show up. See, that's, that's what we do as a community. We, we show up. And, and you may or may not know this yet, but in the midst of tragedy and pain and suffering, it makes all the difference. So often when you're walking through tragedy and suffering, a loyal friend makes all the difference. A loyal friend who stays with you, who is present with you, a loyal friend who says, I am with you and I'm not going anywhere, truly makes all the difference in the world. We, we must be that for one another. We must be there for one another. We must show up for one another as mediators of the healing presence of God. And that's what Ruth was for Naomi. A sign that God has not forgotten her. A gift and a means through which Naomi would come to experience a precious and profound redemption. You see, because Ruth would stay with Naomi and she would work the fields to harvest barley to provide for Naomi. And not only that, but she would actually go on to seek marriage and to marry one of Elimelech's relatives so that Naomi would have her pension and retirement plan and so that Naomi, as it were, would have a grandchild to care for and look after. You see, in a way, Ruth was used by God to give Naomi her life back. She was used by God to give Naomi redemption. But here's the best part. 
In the grand scheme of things, Ruth was not only used to give Naomi her life back, Ruth was used by God to give us our life back. Lastly, look at our redemption. Of course, we, we, we know that Ruth was the great-great-grandmother of King David, but best of all, as we see in Matthew 1, 5, Ruth was actually the far-off grandmother of King Jesus. And she was not only used to give God's people great David, but she was used by God to give God's people great David's greater son, David's son and David's Lord. You see, because this son of Ruth and son of David who would come would be the son of God himself. And he would be called Emmanuel, which means God himself come to be with us, the eternal God. The Almighty that Naomi speaks about here stepped into human flesh and stepped into this veil of tears in which we live. The one from who eternity passed knew nothing except heaven's pleasures, heaven's perfection, and heaven's praises. He stepped in. And when he stepped in, he wasn't immune to our suffering. He took upon himself our frailty, our suffering, Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted, well acquainted with grief. John will tell us that he was rejected by his own people. Mark shows us that he was rejected by his own family and that his brothers thought him insane. The gospel writers show us that he was subjected to unimaginable burdens, unimaginable pains, unimaginable sorrows and sufferings. He felt pain in his body, anxiety in his soul, and deep grief in his heart. And ultimately, he tasted death for us on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became as one who could truly say with Naomi, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. He truly experienced ruin. And because of that, we're never actually alone in our suffering. You see, like Ruth clings to Naomi, he clings to us, telling us that he will never leave us or forsake us, but will be with us always until the end of the age. He is with us, clinging to us, sympathizing with us through it all. And that's not all. On the third day, he rose again, and he ascended to heaven, and before he did so, he made a promise. He promised that one day he would return. And what that means is that he not only stepped in to taste suffering with us and for us, it means that not only is he with us in the midst of our suffering, it means that our suffering actually has an expiration date. He will bring us ultimate and full redemption. He is coming again to abolish death, to remake this world into what it should be, to end all suffering, to end all pain, and to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He is coming again to give us fullness for famine, life for death, and redemption for ruin. And so while in moments of grief and suffering, we might, we might wonder where God is and why he isn't intervening on our behalf, the reality is this, he has. He has. The first advent 
reminds us that he has come to be with us in our suffering, and the second, the promise of the second advent reminds us that our suffering has an expiration date. One day, our suffering will be no more, our broken hearts will be finally mended, and our tears will be wiped from our cheeks. And Elimelech's name will no longer be ironic because the demonstration of God's kingship will be all around us. The king is coming. And so even now, in the midst of ruin, we can trust that God is bringing ultimate redemption. We can trust that even when we experience utter ruin, He is present, He is working. Even when He takes away one of those streams of blessing, He's still the fountain. We can rest in the reality that the hand that sovereignly brings disaster and ruin into our lives is a nail-scarred hand, and that one day, With that same hand, he will lift us up out of the ash heap to reign with him forever, the one true king. We may not see the whole picture like Naomi didn't see the whole picture, but our Redeemer is near, he is for us, and he will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts that we might walk before you humbly, we might trust in your sovereignty and your goodness that you are near, that you're working all things out for our good and that you will bring ultimate redemption. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.